Before I forget, <clears throat> at the end of the service, just want to remind you to be careful because even though there's been shoveling done and there's been snow plowing done underneath the snow, and we were very careful this week, tried to do everything we could to get it sanded and whatever, but there is also ice. So just be careful that even though you see everything plowed, you don't uh, take for granted that it's not slippery underneath. So just try to be careful. We'd appreciate that. Uh, okay. We come to chapter 2 of the account in the Gospel according to John, and we've entitled this morning, The First Miracle, or it could be called The First Sign, probably would be more appropriate for us. But as we come to a very familiar passage, I think, to most people, whether or not they've ever even been in the Bible because of weddings and so forth, people have had this text brought to their attention. John has made it very clear to us in this book that the signs that he has recorded, and this is the first one we're coming to, the signs that he has recorded are to point people to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> he didn't just record signs in here. He just didn't record miracles because they appealed to him. He recorded signs. He recorded miracles with a specific purpose in mind, and that is when you see these signs that you would be pointed to Jesus Christ that people would see him as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And we know from John chapter 20 that through those signs and through coming to that place that they might have life in his name. That is the objective. Well, last week when we were together, we saw that he selected his first disciples as recorded by John, and that was verses 35 through the end of chapter 1. And now we come to his first actual sign, our first miracle. And it's not only the first miracle that he records, but we'll see today, as you're probably well familiar, it is also the first miracle that the Lord Jesus Christ had done. And I need to say this to you so that you are aware of it as believers. We are living in a day and age in which there is tremendous denial of anything miraculous. The miraculous in the academia in, the, in uh, the world of theology, many have put aside miracles and are trying to explain miracles. And I will even pass a couple of comments, Lord willing, as we go through here so that you are aware of some of the things that get said about the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me say very clearly in the beginning, there is, this is nothing short of a miracle that you have here. And if we don't let Scripture speak for itself, by the way, you're not going to see the magnitude of the miracle as well. So let's take a look at it. First of all, the setting in verses 1 and 2, or I should say the occasion. I think I have what I have in the outline there in the bulletin. But the occasion of the setting. What we find right away in verse 1 is that we find on the third day. Now, this in and of itself presents some difficulty sometimes for folks. But I told you ahead of time as I was going through chapter 1, so this should not be a surprise to you. I think the best interpretation of that particular statement is that we have now progressed through the first week of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to understand that again in its context. If you look to verse 29 of chapter 1, we come to the statement in verse 29, the next day, which would have been the second day, because you had the testimony of John the Baptist to the uh, leaders there in the beginning. And then on the next day, verse 29, that is the second day, you had him with a presentation to the public. Then you come to verse 35, and again it says, again, the next day, 
Now we have the two disciples. That was last week. And also in the message last week, you'll notice verse 43, where again John continues and he says, the next day he proposed to go forth into Galilee. And that would have taken some time. And then you come to the statement, and on the third day. And some have interpreted this as the third day of the week. Others have interpreted as the third day of the feast in relationship to where they were with the wine and so forth. I just want you to be aware of that because sometimes you come to a text and you think it's just easy to look at it. But those are very familiar interpretations. I think within the context, though, the simplest way and the correct way, from my understanding, would be to take it. I think it's best to take it as now the seventh day, which means you've progressed through the other four. And now on a third day, which it would have taken time to get up into Galilee and, and so forth, and now you've come to the feast, and that's where we are. John is chronologically giving us the first week of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that he has said. But I'll let you look at that and interpret it uh, for yourself. The, the event, obviously, is very clear because in verse 1 it says there was a wedding. Now, we need to spend a couple of moments on that because a wedding was a very important social event. It still is today. But a wedding today is nothing like it was in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ or back in Jewish times. In their culture, it was a very, very significant event. And in fact, in many of the passages that we come in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in relationship to the church, we have to have some understanding about a wedding and its importance. For example, there is going to be the marriage of the Lamb. The church is involved in what's called the marriage of the Lamb. If you don't understand the wedding process, you're really not going to understand the depth of what's involved with the marriage of the Lamb uh, with his church. Also, in Matthew, and that's, by the way, Revelation 19, Matthew chapter 25 also refers to the virgins and their marching with the oil, and some had uh, oil and some didn't have oil and so forth. If you don't understand the concept behind the Jewish culture in marriages, it is very possible, though, to get some practical application from that, not to understand what really was going on. As well as when you come to the very situation with Mary and Joseph, if you don't understand the culture and you don't understand what's going on with a, a wedding and a marriage, when you see the betrothal between Joseph and Mary, it is hard for us to understand. We equate it to uh, an engagement, but it was a lot more serious than that in the Jewish culture. So there's many things in the Bible, including in the New Testament, even in relationship to the church, that we need to understand some things about a wedding. So I am going to give you uh, a synopsis in probably three to four minutes of what can take you probably five hours to study if you want to take the time to go into the background in it. But let me give you a brief, a brief background. First of all, there was a promise made that, that would take place, and that was usually done by the father. And you young people don't get scared by this, but basically the father would be the one to make the decision, and they would make a promise for who you're going to marry. It wasn't a situation where you had dates and you decided, oh, I, I'm in love with this person and that person. That's not the way it worked. Basically, the father had the control, and he would make arrangements and a promise. That would be the first thing that would take place. But then beyond that, that was still not a full committal, though it was between the fathers. Then came the betrothal period. And during that period, which lasted probably close to a year in most cases, that was a covenant. That was basically law. 
you are now committed to that person. And while we say an engagement, people break off engagements all the time. I remember in North Andover, someone that I was involved with with college and career, and they came to advice for, to myself and also Pastor Springer. And both of us advised that person to break off that engagement one week before the wedding, and they did, by the way. And both of those people are happily married today that did not get married to each other. So it was, it, we see that happen all the time, people break engagements and so forth. With the betrothal, that's why Joseph was trying to put Mary away privately. He was committed to her. It was a contract. It was considered a divorce if you broke in that stage. And so we, we understand that. Then there came the event. So you went through a promise stage. You went through a, a, a betrothal. And then even after that, which a year had gone by, then you came to the wedding night. The wedding light night, while we have a festification and it's an important event and so forth, they get involved in elaborate dress, first of all. The bride would dress up just like we have gowns and so forth today. And then the groom, usually, not always from the reading that I did. Most people say it always happened this way. Some of the reading that I did, it didn't always happen that way. But most of the time, the groom would actually go to the bride's house. And then he would go to the bride's house. She had been prepared and so forth. And then there was a procession, and this is where Matthew 25, by the way, comes in. There was a procession with invited guests, and the groom would take the bride, and they would start in a parade, if you will, or a march that would go to the groom's house, which is where they were going to live. And some of the invited guests were already at the bride's house, and they would come, and others who had been invited, and usually it was at nighttime, and so they would have to have a lamp and they would have to have oil for their lamps and they would wait because they knew the path of the, the people and where they were coming. And then they would just join in as they came along and they got into the area and the, and the party would become bigger and bigger and bigger until they got to the groom's house. And the procession would get there and then it was a tremendously joyous and festive occasion. So they would get there and uh, on the first night what would happen is the groom and the bride would have some type of ceremony that wasn't quite like what we have today, but they would have a formal ceremony, and then it was just rejoicing. And there was uh, a responsibility to the groom's parents uh, in all situations to provide for a feast. And they provided for a feast by the way of food. They provided for a feast by the way of drink. And... Basically, the guests could stay there all week, or, which was very common, they would come for the celebration, they would break and come back the next day again, and they would get involved <clears throat> in a continuous celebration. And in many occasions, from what I was able to read, it would last a whole week. Not only did the, in what we would say is engagement of betrothal, last a whole year, but then the wedding ceremony and everything else, all of the celebration wouldn't just go on for a day like we have today. Then you go your way and the bride and groom go off. While they had their private chambers and so forth and would consummate the marriage uh, in that house, there would be a celebration that would go on upwards of a week. And with the uh, guests that came, they all had to wear what was called wedding garments. They had special garments that they had to also wear to that, which is, again, where Matthew 25 comes in. But there was food, there was drink, and from the research I was able to do, there was also speeches that were made that would go on uh, different days. 
And also, I found this fascinating, there would be a time of what we would call it games, but they would call it riddles. They had a time of riddles. And by the way, it was interesting because as I researched that, you go back into the Old Testament and you see that that happened a lot, even in the scriptures, and it helped me to understand some things there. But they would have a time in which someone would prepare a riddle and so forth, and they would try to figure it out, and it could go on for a couple of days and so forth. There was the exchange of gifts that would go on and so forth. But one of the biggest things, it was not only a big social event, but it was considered a big thing in the eyes of Israel to unite them together. Not just the new couple, but the whole community became united together in this event, and it became a big way of bringing them all together to reiterate their commitment to the Lord and commitment to one another. Well, at any rate, we're at this wedding feast now, so we're beyond the betrothal. We're at the wedding ceremony that can go on upwards of about a week. Where's the location? It's Cana of Galilee in verse 1, very clearly. Now, Cana of Galilee is near, from the best that we can tell, if the location's correct, it is near Nazareth. I know in some of the trips to Israel, had the opportunity to go up to that area that's called Cana of Galilee today. And it's near Nazareth. It was the area from which Nathaniel came. And it is a very small town that's up in that area. And here we are up in uh, Cana of Galilee area. The Lord's ministering. They're at a wedding. And let's take a look at the guests. And we find the guests given to us in verse 1 and 2. And also possibly verse 12. And that's why I read verse 12. But let's take a quick look. See who the guests were. Well, Mary's there. Mary, the mother of Jesus. No question about it in verse 1. She's there. She's been invited. Also, Jesus has been invited. Now, I found this rather interesting because some of the things that I read said Jesus really wasn't invited. He just came along, and they just put up with the disciples. Well, I don't know. The verse is pretty clear to me. It says Jesus was invited, so I'll take it that way. He was invited and his disciples. So his disciples were also there. So Jesus is there. His, his disciples, well, we know this much from John's recording. There's at least five of them there. Andrew's there. Peter's there. Nathaniel's there. We know that Philip's there. And another one, possibly, as I mentioned last week, John. We're not sure about that. But at least five of the disciples. And there's also the possibility of somebody else there. And that's why I read verse 12. If you look at verse 12, after this, they went to Capernaum. Who did? He and his mother and his brothers. Now, where his brothers there, it doesn't say that in the context of verses 1 to 11, so I'm a little careful with that, but there is the possibility. And again, I, I just want you to realize that the Lord Jesus Christ did have half-brothers and, and so forth. Mary did have other children. She did not remain a virgin for all her life, contrary to what Roman Catholicism may teach, and I came out of that, so you need to be aware of that. Uh, they had normal relations, Joseph and Mary. Interesting thing is who's not there. There's no indication that Joseph's there. What does that mean? I don't know, other than possibly he was already dead. We know that he obviously is dead by the time we come to the crucifixion. He could have already been dead by now. The Lord Jesus Christ is in his 30s. And it's very possible that at this time, Mary's there, Jesus is there, if his brothers are there and so forth. There's no mention of Joseph whatsoever. There's a very good possibility that he has already died. I don't know about that. But what does that tell us? Some things that are important for the context. Number one, he was... Probably this wedding was probably involved with a relative. Probably a relative of Mary's. Probably a relative of the Lord Jesus Christ because that whole family's invited. Further, Mary was probably involved in helping. With those weddings, while there was a responsibility to the groom's side and so forth, people ended up just like we have social events here 
and people end up serving, people end up bringing meals, you'll see that Mary's the one that calls to the attention of the Lord Jesus Christ in a second about the wine and the problem with it. She was probably involved in helping out, uh, as most would say, in the situation. Uh, Also, uh, not only was Jesus there, but why? He was there to celebrate, and he was not afraid of, folks, social events. He was not afraid to go to social events. He was not afraid to go to places where there was rejoicing. Sometimes the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ is he was just a somber guy that was never interested in any joy and so forth. Let me tell you something. The Lord Jesus Christ came that our joy might be full. And he was at a wedding feast, and he was having, in my opinion, a good time mixing with the people and so forth as well. He did socialize. He was not afraid to rejoice. But a problem arose. What's the problem? Verses 3 through 5. We know they're at the wedding. What happens? It's very simple. The wine runs out. Verse 3. They're out of wine. And that's why some feel that when it refers in verse 1 to the third day, they're thinking the third day of the feast. Could be, but it's more likely that the feast would have gone on longer than that before the wine would have run out. At any rate, we don't know that, but we do know for sure in verse 3 that the wine has run out. Now, that might seem to be a simple thing for us, but I again want to point out a few things to you. You need to realize that this was not just a minor problem. It was major. Why major? Well, number one, wine was one of their biggest drinks. They didn't have purified water. They didn't have a lot of that. Secondly, this would have been a tremendous embarrassment to the groom. Tremendous embarrassment to the groom and to his parents and family. How embarrassing. From the reading that I was able to do, number one, they were subject to lawsuits. To host a wedding and to run short on the supply of wine, they could have been sued by everybody there because it was absolutely expected that while they were bringing gifts and so forth, that they were to be cared for by this family and they were to provide enough, even if they were poor. That was a provision. Secondly, and more importantly, is it probably would have caused the, the bride and the groom to be separated from for life. Now, we don't see that. It's just like when a Jew came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, someone comes to know the Lord, they get baptized. Half the family sometimes doesn't know it. Not true back then. When somebody came to baptism, they were cast out of the family. When someone came to a wedding feast and they ran short of supplies for the guests that they had invited, they would have not only faced the embarrassment, but they would have been ostracized as a couple for their entire life, according to some of the reading on the history, and you can find that in some of the books that are available. So it was a, it was a big problem, not just a problem that wines run out. It's a problem that the family's facing. It's a problem that the bride and groom are facing for, for their lifetime if it is not corrected. So what happens? You get the comment of Mary right away. What does she do? It gives out in verse 3, and the mother of Mary comes to the Lord Jesus. I mean, Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to him and says, they have no wine. She knew her son. You say, what do you mean she knew her son? Well, there's some things that I personally believe here, but she does know that he's different for sure. Why? She knows that this son was born while she was a virgin. She knows the announcement that came to her. She knew that this was the one that would save his 
people from their sins. She knew, and that's where I, I believe this firmly, she knew that he was the Messiah. And she kept pondering the things that were happening in her heart. So if anything, she knew that he was capable of correcting the situation. He hadn't performed any miracles. She hadn't seen any miracles. But she certainly knew who her son was and knew the promises of God. So she knew, I can turn to him because he is unique. And we've seen that he is already in the book. And so she goes to her son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and says, look, we're out of wine. How does the Lord Jesus Christ react to that? Verse 4. Verse 4, his reaction, and some have stepped back on this, when he says to her, woman. Now that is significant, by the way. Is it derogatory? No, it is not. Some think that this is a disrespectful way of referring to his mother. That is not the case at all. And I want, I'm not going to take the time, but there's many passages in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, and he's going to refer to her that way again when he's on the cross, where he, uh, they referred to people uh, in that language by just sim simply saying the word woman. And let me tell you this. Some have tried to retranslate that word because they, they're afraid of the disrespect. That is an absolutely perfect translation. Woman is good. That is the way it should be translated. And so when you look at the word, it's not disrespect. However, what is in the term by him not saying mother is he's making it very clear to her that a relationship between him and her has changed. Why? His public ministry is beginning. And while they have enjoyed mother-son relationship, as his public ministry is now beginning, so is there a change in the relationship, which is why he's going to say further what he says to her. There's a major change in the relationship. He is basically going to start his public ministry, and the relationship with his mother is going to be more one of a savior. It's going to be that he's going to be seen by even her as a messiah, someone that she needs to look to. It's, it's one that he is going to see, by the way, or she is going to see that he's the one that she has to also even pray to. And I just want to make a couple more comments on that. There is absolutely no room in this text for a co-redemptist. Say, why do you even bring that up? Because this text is sometimes used, that his mother had that much authority and she could command him because he does do the miracles. Absolutely not. That's why the word woman is used, is to show the change of the relationship. This is not set up so that because the miracle was done and Mary came to Jesus, that that means that we can pray to Mary to get to Jesus. Absolutely not. It needs to be very clear that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. So when he says woman, it is really a very polite way of saying to her that my public ministry has begun, our relationship has changed. But he also says, what to me and to you? I just did a literal translation of what that says. He says, woman, what do I have to do with you? And even the note on my Bible that I'm looking at has a literal translation, what to me and to you? This situation is different. You're looking at just the physical situation. My ministry is now different, and this is a different realm. Your interest and my interest are now different. Why? Because I have come to do the Father's will. And if you really want to see it, I'll give you one reference. There are several. 
This is a Hebrew idiom that's being used here. And if you turn on your own to Judges 11, 12, when you go home, you can see one expression of it. David used it uh, in, in a couple of times in the Old Testament. It's an idiom that basically says, I don't understand because your interest is one thing, my interest is another. Why are you asking me to do this? That's what he's basically saying to him. And when he says, my hour has not yet come, what is he referring to? He's referring to the cross. Some, again, take that as just a public ministry. Everywhere in John, and you'll see it repeated in chapter 7, chapters 8, chapter 17, just in John alone. Every time he uses the word hour, he's referring to the cross of Calvary. It had not come yet. It was not time for him to go to the cross. It was not time for him for his death. Why? She didn't know the timing. She had no idea. She knew he came to save his people from his sins, from their sins. And it's possible that what he is presenting there is it is not time for the full disclosure of full disclosure of the glory of God. It is not time for his death or resurrection yet. But the signs will begin because the relationship is changing between you and me. And now in my public ministry, he is going to just manifest, look at verse 11, the glory of God, but not in the same way that he is yet at the cross or at his resurrection. So what you've got in verse 4 is the request by Mary, I'm sorry, verse 3, and then the response is a polite response, and he basically is saying, your interest is in this wine only. I have a greater interest. And really, while he does refer to the uh, change the water to wine, the biggest interest is verse 11, and that is the glory of God. Now, Mary's final words happen in verse 5, and I want to give a little application on this. His mother says to him, servant, uh, to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I took a little time early, and you might not have even understood it, even though I said it, uh, to explain a little bit about the wedding and the relationship of Mary. Why? This is not the word slave. Most people, when they look at this passage, at least I always have, I've envisioned that these were slaves that were there that basically Mary went over and said, slaves, take care of this. It's not the case at all. She's probably even talking to relatives. It's actually the word for deacon here, not the word for slave. They were simply servants, just like Mary was. And so Mary, that's why, again, I say she had the role in helping out and in some way directing the servants. She does not know what Jesus is going to do. But she does know that he can change the situation. She also wants them to realize when she says, whatever he says, do it. That even if it doesn't make sense, just do it. You can trust him. And so she goes to those that are ministering, and she says to them, whatever he says, do it. I want to stop for a little application there for a second for us. There are times in your life, there are times in my life that things will not make sense. When you look at the Word of God and you know what God wants you to do, not because you feel you want to do it, because there's clear direction from the Word of God, and you look at it and you say, but it doesn't make sense. Trust the Lord with all my heart. Lean not on your own understanding. How can I not lean on my understanding when I have all of this in front of me? God says, you don't trust in that. You lean on me. Trust in me. And there's sometimes you have to trust the Lord when it doesn't even make sense. And you know what? You can trust in what the Lord Jesus Christ will do because 
he knows what's best. And she knew that much. She knew that he knew what was best for the situation. So the solution comes in verses 6 through 10. What is it? Well, in verse 6, we see the materials that are available to the Lord. By the way, he didn't need these. He didn't need anything. Why? Remember chapter 1? Everything was created by him. He didn't need this. If he wanted, he could have said 16,000 water uh, wine bottles appear, and it would have happened. But he didn't do that. What was available was six large stone water pots. And they were about 20 to 30 gallons apiece. And if you do some mathematics just in our own English, you're going to come up with 120 to 180 gallons somewhere in there. Uh, they were used for what? They were used for the washing and purification. So I want you to notice this. The family could have been poor, but there's plenty of water. That's not the problem. The problem is there's no wine. There's plenty of water around because they have it available to even fill these water pots. And they used it for washing. There were all kinds of things. You are probably familiar, since this is a wedding feast, they had to continuously wash their hands. They had to make sure that everything was clean before they touched it and so forth. So there was plenty of water around, and they were, had it there because of the ceremony that would go on all week. However, there was no wine. And so Jesus gives instruction. And what is it? Verse 7. Fill the water pots with water, not anything else. Fill them. Why? Personally, I believe he didn't want any room for anything else. This is not like Kool-Aid. Now, that might sound silly, but it's not a situation where you fill up the water so far, then you dump the Kool-Aid, and the Kool-Aid brings it up further. No, these get filled right to the brim so everybody knows there's nothing else going in here. Nothing. Water only. Water only. So he says, fill them to the, to the brim. There's no solution going in. They do it. We see there's plenty of water. And then he says this. He said to them, now draw it out and take it to the head waiter. Again, who's the head waiter? Probably the coordinator. Today we have wedding coordinators and so forth, but again, understand the situation. It's the one that was the chief, the one that was in charge. And having had it filled with water, nothing else other than to take it to the waiter. He didn't even say to the water, listen, he didn't say to the water, become wine. There's nothing recorded. He just says, fill it with water. Period. Why? We'll talk about that in a second. They fill it, and what happens? We find out. He takes it to the head waiter. He tastes the water, which had become what? Wine. The water had become wine. It was miraculous. Not only was it miraculous, but I want you to notice that it was done only on the spoken word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just on the spoken word. He didn't put something else in there to change it. He didn't need the elements. We already said that. But simply, he changed it. This, by the way, is an unusual miracle. Why? Most of the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ had to do with healing. They had to do with healing of the body or healing of, in, in different situations. Because of that, some have referred to this as a luxury miracle. I think they're losing the point of the, the whole thing. The matter is, the Lord was at a wedding. There was a need, and he provided for it by simply speaking the word. He had it filled with water, and it was changed. Changed into what? Listen, folks. Changed into wine. Period. 
It's real wine. This is not grape juice. That's an injustice to rightly dividing the word of God. This is wine that was created. You say, what do you mean wine? Listen, the scriptures strongly teach against drunkenness. Clearly. Clearly it speaks against drunkenness. This is the word oinos. And if you were to look at that word and you were to look at it in the New Testament, you can't get away from it. In fact, we're told in Ephesians, do not be drunk with wine. Same word. Same word. And if you were to go throughout the New Testament, even that uh, people would not be to be committed to much wine. It's referring to the same word. Now, let me make some things clear to you. First of all, it's not grape juice. It's not the word for grape juice. There was a word in the Greek language for that. He did not use that. What does that mean? It was the common drink. Water was not the most pure thing. Water was mixed with wine in that day because of the purification process. And because wine was the most common pure drink, that was drunk in those days. It was purer than water. It was different, yes, that is true, from the wine today. If you were to go to a liquor store, and I hope you won't, but if you were, you would find on the shelf, you can even see it in the grocery room, uh, grocery stores, that there's wine that's 60 proof, 80 proof, 90 proof, I'm not sure what they all are. That was not this wine. It was not that strong like that. However, it was fermented. And I have books in my office that I've read, and they, they say absolutely not fermented. You know why? Because they're trying to defend the Lord Jesus Christ into somebody that he never presented himself to be. That's why. They're trying to defend the reputation of God. God doesn't need his, his reputation defended. He did what he did. And he did it the way he did it, period. And in fact, if you don't think that it was fermented, look at the context. Preachers tell us over and over, study the word and keep it in its context, rightly divide it and don't add to it. That's correct. And look at what the context says. He says, look at everybody brings the first wine in, verse 10. And then what he says, when the people are drunk, then they give them other wine. Now, did it take days? Yes. Usually. Usually it would take days of drinking that wine. But you don't get drunk on grape juice. And every indication is that he changed the water to wine. Was that, does that mean that the Lord Jesus Christ was approving of drunkenness? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not at all. But does it prove that there's a miracle here where the water became New wine, which was, by the way, new wine was fermented in that day. If you look at the context, verse 10 makes it absolutely clear. And by the way, if you don't think that that's true and you want to argue with me, would you go back with me to Matthew chapter 11 for just a minute? Let the word of God say what it says. There is prohibition of wine drinking under certain circumstances, for example, for kings, for people in leadership like that, because there's concern, why? That will, it'll affect their thinking. It'll affect their decisions. But there's generally not a prohibition against drinking wine. Now, by saying that, I realize what I'm saying. 
Pastor Dan, you're setting up people to get drunk. Absolutely not. If you walk with God and you pay attention to what God's done, is doing in your life, that won't happen. But because of my concern for that, I can't twist the word of God to make it mean what I want it to mean. It says what it says. And if you don't think that they thought the Lord Jesus Christ changed water into wine and drank wine, look at Matthew chapter 11 and look at verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, one, he's gluttonous. And what did they accuse him of? What does it say? Being a drunkard. Was he a drunkard? No. False accusation? Absolutely. Common among people? Yes, to accuse people of things they didn't do. But that's what they accuse him of. That's what he had to face. He was a friend of tax collectors. And if you look at that verse, there isn't a passage that you can't go to. I mean, a word there, you can't go to another passage and see where he did sit with tax collectors. He did see, sit and drink with people. He did see, sit down and eat with people. They had taken it to say, to the wrong extreme, he was a glutton, which he never was. He was a drunkard, which he never was. And that he basically mixed with the heathen, which he did do, but he never partook of their sin, ever. And so I'm only pointing that out to you without going into all the verses on wine to say, when he changed the water into wine, guess what he did? He changed the water into wine. Plain and simple. And they tasted it, and that's what he said. And when you come down to verse 10, and when he's referring to every man drinking it, and then you bring out the pour of wine, why? Because you cannot make the distinction anymore. And when a person's drunk, they don't know what's good, they don't know what's bad. That's why he's saying that. Usually this wine is given, and then after time, when they've celebrated for so many days, they get drunk, and they don't care if you're bringing out kerosene. They can't tell the difference. I'm exaggerating. I hope you know that. Okay, but that's what he says in verse 10. That's not the center of the miracle. Sometimes to believers it is, by the way. What is the significance? Well, let's wrap it up. It's found in verse 11. This beginning of his signs. Remember, that's what John was going to do. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And when it says this beginning, I believe that's properly pointing out that this was his first miracle. First miracle, where? At a wedding feast? Yes, I think, again, confirming all the way back to Genesis how important marriage is in the priority. Also, he's choosing a joyous occasion, a social event that brings people together. And I think he's showing his approval on, on what is going on. Not drunkenness again. That's not the case. But he's coming there, and he shows this sign. And you'll notice something. Well, I'll give you a couple of things in a, in a second. But let me, let me finish with this. He manifests what? His glory. <clears throat> this isn't the full manifestation of the glory, but only he could have done this. The people knew this. The servants, remember who they were. These weren't slaves. These were family people who were helping out, who were servants. Mary knew. The waiter didn't even know. The head waiter didn't even know where it came from. He never saw that it was water. He doesn't know where it came from, according to verse 9. Only God can do a miracle like this, change water into wine. What else? He did it by speaking. Listen, here's an application here. Where does God speak to us? Through his word. Period. How great is your God? How great is my God? 
Well, we say he can do anything. There's nothing too hard for God. Theologically correct. Do you really believe that God can stop the winds? He can. Do you believe that the Lord who put these stars in heaven can make them fall? Yes, he can. Do you believe the Lord can take the mountains and pick them up and throw them anywhere he wants? Yes, he can. Do you believe that the water can take that the Lord can take water and make it into wine? He can. Do you see how great God is? When we get down into the nitty-gritty of difficulties in our life. Sometimes we lose track of that. I know God can do anything, but I don't think he can help me out of this situation. I, I don't think, I don't know that God, I know he can intellectually, but I don't know that God can get me through this situation. Yes, he can. There is nothing impossible for our God. There is nothing too great for the one that, according to John chapter 1, created everything. He can change it anytime he wants. And he will, by the way, including the heavens and the earth. There is nothing too hard for him. I want you to see something else by way of application. Water was one of the simplest things available to them. Okay, what does that mean? He took something that was the simplest, most available, and turned it into something special. So special that the head waiter turns around and says, wow, this is better than anything I've tasted. I'm, I'm expanding on it. That's what he says. This is, this is the best. What do you think God can do with you? What do you think God can do with me? We're just ordinary people. Oh, you might think, or I might think that we're someone special. Well, we are to him. But if you just let God take little old ordinary you, and you get out of the way, watch what God will do. Watch what God will do. He took water and made it wine. He will take simple, ordinary people. Like who? Like John? Like Matthew? Like Peter? Like Andrew? Like David? Like Moses? But those are all special people, Moses, Abraham. No, they weren't. They were just simple people that followed God, that had resistance all the way. But they followed God, and God used them mightily let God use you let God use me you young people you might think well I don't know what's ahead in my life just right now start yielding to God and you'll watch and see what God will do in your life he shows us how important marriage is here one other application he always saves the best for the last you say what in the world does that mean Oh, you're sitting here today, you say, I've been saved 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And you know, it's getting kind of, it's been a long time, and I've seen a lot of things, and I know you got all the answers, and I know everything's to you, fine. But you know what? You ain't seen nothing yet. The best is ahead. If you're 99 years old, and I don't believe there is anybody in here that's 99. If you're 99 years old and have been saved for 85 years, best is yet to come. If you got saved last week, the best is yet to come. Here we are with water, and the end result is the best was there. 
And when you study scripture, that principle is true. It hasn't even entered into our mind and heart, though we have the full revelation of God, what God has prepared for us. How important it is to what? Walk by faith. Where do you get that, Pastor Dan? Verse 11. And his what? Disciples, what? Believed in him. Now, what does that mean? Did they come to saving faith? I don't think so. When you look at the context of chapter 1, when you look at the context and compare it to Matthew, and you compare it to the other Gospels, they had already been pointed by John. They were already following what John believed, that the Messiah would come. And as soon as the Messiah came on, they followed him. They had believed on him. What does it mean? Their faith was increased. When they saw what he did in their presence, when he saw what they were able to do, they got strengthened in faith. And that's what it means, the just shall live by faith. Not just for saving faith, but walking by faith. Their faith was increased by seeing what God had done. Isn't that true in your life? I hope it is. If you're a believer, when you see how you trusted in God and God got me through that situation, God provided in that situation, God did this for me. Doesn't that encourage you to yield even more to God? It should. And I don't know how this one's going to work out. Well, he got me through that. He'll get you through this. Many of us know the, even the testimony of Pastor Stringer when he said even in the hospital, he just knew that God was going to get him through that situation. Where did that come from? Because God had brought Pastor Stringer through many other situations. That's why. And he knew the God he could trust in. That's the same, same application for you and your family. That's the same application for you and your individual life. You see, look beyond. It's the miracle that pointed to the glory of God, realizing this is the one. Only he could change water to wine. Yes. No one else could do that. No trickery. Only he could make the end better than the beginning. Only he could just speak and show us how we can trust in him. And he's the same one that you and I know. You know what's also interesting as I close? We don't know what the reaction of the people was. Say, oh, yes, we do. Really? Show me. The only thing that you know is the waiter said, wow, where did this come from? In fact, he goes to the, to the groom, doesn't he? Calls over, the waiter called the bridegroom over and said, wow, you know, hey, he saved the best. He didn't even know where it came from. What about all the people that benefited from that? All the other people, the servants knew, says so. They knew who did the miracle. Did they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ? Doesn't say they did. You know, God can do things in your life. God can do things in other people's lives. God can do things as the word of God is preached. And for some people, it's water off a duck. You know why? Because only God can change a heart. Only God can change a heart. That means for salvation, for an unbeliever to come to faith in Christ, only God can do that miracle. Only God can make that person see. Because all kinds of things can be presented, and you think you presented the gospel right, and you did, and you think you've witnessed as much, and you don't understand why they haven't come to Christ. Only God can open that heart. And you know what, fellow believer? Only God can change your heart. Only God can change my heart. 
We can do everything possible to try to stir a person into following God, to try to give them the word of God to follow. But man's heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And we can't even follow unless God changes our hearts. We need to see. We need to see Jesus and who he is. We need to see Jesus not just as a miracle worker. That's the way some people come to Christ today. They, they just want to see miracles done and Jesus doing things like that. We need to see the manifestation of his glory and who he is and what God is doing in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him because of who he is, not because of what he does. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you once again for this gracious people that came out today. You know, Lord, it was all part of your plan. Thank you for this first miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ, once again attesting to who he is. Father, we can look back on a historical miracle that took place some 2,000 years ago and even marvel at it and not be moved by it. Help us to love the Lord Jesus Christ even more. Help us to realize that he wants to take simple, old, ordinary people like us and change them into trophies to his glory for what he is doing and has done. And Father, if there be any here who have not yet come to the Lord Jesus Christ, help them to see that this miracle is here not to just fascinate them, but to show them that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that they might come to believe on him and have the gift of eternal life. And the believers would be encouraged when we realize that in our life, the best is yet to come, no matter how old or how young we are, as we walk with him and trust in him. Thank you for this time together. We pray these things in our safety as we go home today. In Jesus' name.